All right, we're gonna look at Isaiah chapter 29 today. Isaiah 29, so flip to Isaiah 29. If you got your Bibles with you, we'll have the words on the screen. And I need a volunteer, a brave soul, who will join me here for just a moment. Just one volunteer. No one, really. I promise not to embarrass you. Give me, oh, I've got one coming up. All right, fantastic. Fantastic. You didn't even wait for me to call on you. No, Thank you, man. Tell me your name again. Mark. Mark. Awesome. Mark. All right. Here's what we're going to do. So you're flipping Isaiah 29. Yes? Awesome. Mark, I don't want to break your glasses. Put that on. Take them off? Whatever you want to do, man. Yeah, don't, don't cheat. It'll ruin the sermon, okay? <laughs> I just need you to not see for a minute. There you go. Perfect. All right, so you guys remember, don't, don't worry about him for a second. We'll just get to that in just a second. You guys remember that we're in this section of Isaiah that's all about learning to trust God. We said it's a series of poems where essentially Isaiah is revisiting the idea of trusting God and saying to his people, the context is, look, you are making an alliance with Egypt to protect you from Assyria. And I'm telling you, don't make an alliance with Egypt. You need to trust me, right? You need to trust that I am enough for you. You need to trust that I'm looking out for you. Trust me, trust me, trust me. That's the theme of this whole section, right? And so last week we saw some things that, about pride that prevent us from trusting God. If you were here last week, we saw how Isaiah 28 is all about pride and our inability to trust God when we're steeped in pride. Now we're gonna see a little bit more of how that pride plays itself out because we're going to see in Isaiah 29 a little bit of the result of pride and it's the thing we call spiritual blindness, spiritual blindness. So read with me. Mark, you're being a good sport. Just hang tight for just a second, Okay. Read with me Isaiah 29, verses 1 through 12, because I want you to see what we're up to here. Isaiah 29, verses 1 through, actually, let's read through verse 14. It says this, Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. That's Jerusalem. That's a nickname for Jerusalem, Ariel. He says, Add year to year. Let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around and will besiege you with towers and I will raise siege works against you and you will be brought low from the earth you shall speak and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost and from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, Suddenly you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams he is eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams he is drinking and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. And then here's the, the center of the whole chapter now. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has been Come to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, 
Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. So, Mark, thank you. You're being a good sport. The center of this text is all about spiritual blindness. And what God is saying to his people is, you have been blind to my heart and you've been blind to my ways. And I want you to understand that that's not how I desire it to be. Now, here's Mark why I asked you up here. I have um, put a chair out here for you, and I just want you to see if you can find it. Right? That's your goal. All All right? So you do whatever you want to do, but I want you to find the chair. Ready, go. Well, that's expensive equipment. Let's not go that direction. Good, getting colder, colder. That's warmer. All right, now Mark, let me, let me pause. Let me invite you to do something. What, is the, what could you do right now that would help you be able to find that chair as fast as humanly possible? Take the blindfold off. Yes, absolutely. I'll give you permission. Go ahead and take the blindfold off. Now, Mark, find the chair. Yes, well done. Everybody give him a round of applause. You nailed it. Thank you for being a good sport, man. I appreciate it. You can keep it. That's a gift to you. Just don't, don't ever say I didn't give you anything, okay? So obviously it's a silly illustration, but it makes the point, right? God is saying to his people, you are blind, but I am committed to removing your blindness. I am committed to helping you find the chair, right? That's really the message of this whole chapter is God is saying, you are spiritually blind, but I'm committed to removing that blindness. And that's God in his mercy and in his goodness. We're gonna learn some things about spiritual blindness. Now, we said that this whole section is about trusting God. And the thing that we're gonna see is that there is a reciprocal relationship between trusting God and spiritual blindness. Now, what I mean when I say there's a reciprocal relationship is this, is that we're gonna see that a failure to trust God is actually one of the causes of spiritual blindness. It's a reason that God brings spiritual blindness into a life because of a failure to trust him. And some of us probably have, have experienced that in our lives. There's probably been moments Places probably sometimes right now or some areas of our life right now where we're struggling to trust God and we're becoming less able to see his heart and his ways in that area of our life because of our inability to trust. The reciprocal side of that, the other side of that, is that when you are spiritually blind, it often becomes then what? Harder to trust, right? It becomes harder to trust. And so it becomes this vicious cycle. It, it becomes this relationship between those two things that becomes hard to conquer, hard to overcome in our lives because we are failing to trust. Therefore, we become blinder to God's heart and his ways. And then as we become blinder to his heart and his ways, it becomes harder to trust. Now, there's, there's got to be a way to break that cycle. Would you agree? There's got to be a way to, to, for hopefully for God to move in in his mercy in that moment to eliminate our blindness so that we might see, so that we might ultimately find the chair, the thing that he's instructed us to do, right? The thing that he wants for us, the kind of life he wants us to lead. Uh, there's gotta be a way to find the chair. God is not uh, sort of a cruel game show host, so to speak, that says, come up here and find the chair. And by the way, I'm gonna move the chair around on you. And then I'm gonna play jokes on you. And then I'm gonna tell you you're getting closer when you're not getting closer. That's not our God. He's good and he's merciful and he wants us to find the chair, so to speak. And so he's gonna help us along the way. Now there's gonna be some lessons that we're gonna learn about spiritual blindness in this text. I want us to 
ask two questions essentially and hopefully get a few insights in answer to these two questions. And the first question is this, what causes spiritual blindness? And the second one is, how does God eliminate it? What causes spiritual blindness and how does God eliminate it if we find ourselves blind? Now, before I answer either of those two questions, there's one thing I need to do. I need to identify that there are two types of spiritual blindness that the scriptures talk about, that the Bible talks about. Two types of spiritual blindness. The first one is found, it's actually not what Isaiah 29 is talking about, but it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I just want to read to you two verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. So you can just listen. You don't even have to flip there. Just kind of listen. Paul is talking to the Corinthians and he says, even if our gospel, the good news that Jesus has been crucified and resurrected and that through faith in him you can have eternal life, even if that's veiled, he says it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, most of us, if we've, you know, if you've been in church a while, uh, most of us who have been in church a while probably are familiar with that concept, this idea. Maybe we've heard that verse. It's a pretty well-known verse. Maybe we've heard that before. And we would recognize that it was true in our own lives, that before we believed that Jesus was who he said he was and did what he said he did, before that, that we were, in effect, blind. And that blindness was not by choice, but it was brought about by, this text says, by the God of this world. Now, he's not referring to, even though God rules over the entire universe, what Paul is talking about there is not God who reigns supreme, who is loving and good and the father of Jesus Christ. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about the devil in that text. And he's saying he is the one who blinds the eyes of those who don't believe in the gospel. And so that's one type of spiritual blindness that the, the scriptures talk about, the type of blindness that exists when we have yet to believe in Jesus. Now, let me acknowledge that as I say that, if you are here today and you have not chosen to believe in Jesus, I've just said something incredibly offensive to you. I've just said that you are blind. And not only that, I've said that you're blind because the devil is making you blind. So let me say two things to that. I can't make it unoffensive, okay? It just is. But what I can say to you is this. Every single one of us who are sitting in this place, who have come to believe in Jesus, did not believe we were blind until Jesus drew us to himself. And then when he did, we saw that we were. Would somebody say amen to that? And we didn't do anything special and we weren't really wise and we weren't really smart or we weren't the object of God's affection in some special way that you are not. We were lost and blind and God, by the power of his spirit, made us see and we get no credit for it. He did it completely in all and it offended our arrogance as well. It offended me completely to be told I was blind and then to be made to see and then to only realize after I could see that I in fact had been blind. So I say that and just know we've been in that situation. The, the next thing I would say to you is this. The, if I could just suggest the right response to being told that you are blind is not to say that's absolutely not true. It's perhaps the better response is to ask, is it true? Is what he is saying true? Am I in fact blind and I don't realize it? And if it is, might I give you some bit of guidance to say, the right response to that is just to say, to ask God, God, am I blind? Do I not see who you are by not seeing who Jesus is? Have I missed something? And let me tell you that God responds to that prayer in a very powerful and a very unique way. My guess is he'll begin to unveil to you 
who Jesus is. And often he'll do that by surrounding you with people who love Jesus a whole lot and who are displaying his likeness to you. So my encouragement to you is just this, is to recognize that that type of blindness that comes when we don't acknowledge the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a blindness that we have to stay in, but it's one that we can cry out to God and say, would you deliver me from that? Would you speak to me? Would you reveal? If I'm missing it, would you show me? Now, even as I say that, here's what I recognize. There are a lot of cults that will show up at your door some days and they will say to you, if you'll just pray and just ask God to show you that what I'm telling you is true, is true, he'll show you that it's true. And then they're counting on the fact that a lot of circumstantial things might come into your life and that you would read those as signs that what they told you is true. And I'm basically instructing you to do the very same thing, right? But I don't just want to instruct you to say, pray to God and ask him to show you that what I'm saying about blindness and, and being able to see is true. What I want to invite you to do is pray that and then do your homework. I want to invite you to investigate the scriptures and I want to invite you to investigate the merits of the gospel. I want to invite you to investigate all the arguments for the reason for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his divinity and his perfection. Don't just, don't just say God and then interpret your circumstances. Do that. Watch what God will do because his spirit will be at work to answer that prayer. But also, Christianity is the only worldview that can truly make sense of everything that takes place in our world. Every other worldview falls short somewhere. Christianity is robust. And every, at every turn, it makes sense of the world and the way it operates and the way it is and the way we're wired. You have to take the time to see it. That's my invitation to you. So that's the first type of blindness. But this text, Isaiah 29, is about a whole different type of blindness. It's about a whole different type of blindness. It's about a blindness that can come upon God's people upon those who have believed in him, upon those who are his followers. Because in this text, he's talking, he's talking to Isaiah, and Isaiah is talking then to the people of Jerusalem. And he's saying to them, look, you're God's people, but there's a type of blindness that is set in upon you. There's a type of blindness that has come to you. It's not the same type of blindness that prevents us from seeing who God is, but it's a type of blindness that prevents us from seeing what God is up to in our lives and in our world. It's the type of blindness that, is, that can come upon a follower of Jesus. That's the type he's talking about here. And that's the type we want to gain some insights on. So are those two types of blindness clear? The distinction clear between those two? I just want to make sure that we're clear. So then let's look at then this first question. What causes spiritual blindness? And there's a lot of things that we could probably point to throughout the scriptures. We're just going to root ourselves here in Isaiah 29. And there are at least three things here. And they're all really the result of arrogance. Can I just say that? Go back to chapter 28 and the pride we talked about. They really are, in some sense, rooted in arrogance in greater and lesser ways. But we're going to be a little bit more specific. So the first answer to the question, what causes spiritual blindness, is the repetition of empty religious rituals. That's the first thing he shows us. Causes spiritual blindness, an inability for God's people to see his heart, understand his heart, understand his ways, is the re repetition of empty religious rituals. Look at verse one again, and then we're gonna look at verse 13. These are the two verses where we see this truth brought forward. In verse one, he says, ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. In other words, he's identifying that the people of Jerusalem take a lot of pride in the fact that they are descendants, so to speak, of David. That David, this great king, this one whom God said is a man after my own heart, he is the one through whom I'm gonna send the savior of the world, that they take a lot of pride in being related to David. And he's saying, look, this is, yes, this is the city. You're right, the city where David, he made it his headquarters, his home. And then it says, 
add year to year. Let the feasts run their round. In other words, the very first thing that Isaiah is saying at the outset of this chapter is, there are all these religious rituals that the Jewish people were instructed to practice, all these feasts, all these different practices they had to do throughout the year. And so he's, when he's saying, add year to year and let the feasts run their round, what he's saying is, you guys have just, you're just doing the things that I've told you to do, but your heart is completely disconnected from those things. Have you experienced that before? You're doing the things, you're getting up, you're having the quiet time, you are, you are sharing the gospel with others, you are doing the disciplines of the Christian life, the things that are just part and parcel to following God and walking with Jesus, all these things that come into our, I'm praying, right? I'm reading my Bible, I'm studying, I'm doing, I'm coming to church on Sunday morning, I mean, I'm showing up, right? Isn't that good? Isn't that, good? Isn't that enough for God? I'm showing up at church. I even sing the songs, Right? Like I don't even just stand there with my hands in my pockets. I sing them every once in a while. I even get one of these going. Right? That doesn't seem to be what God is interested in. Because look then at verse 13. So he's saying you just keep doing these repetitious religious rituals. And then in verse 13, a little further down, it says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. In other words, he's saying, you're really good at saying the things you're supposed to say, at coming in and singing the songs, honoring me with your mouth, but your heart is what? Far from me. And he says, the fear of me, in other words, like the awe and reverence that you're supposed to experience as it relates to me, my personhood, God, it's, it's like, it's not real to you. It's a commandment taught by men. It's like something you are like, okay, somebody told me that's true, therefore I guess it's true, but you haven't, ex you haven't actually experienced any awe or sense of reverence towards God. Your heart is completely disconnected, my people. Your heart is completely disconnected from the purpose that I have. So he's saying that, in effect, is causing a type of blindness in you towards my purposes, towards the things that I'm doing. You can't understand them. You can't see them. And the reason is that you have disconnected, you have disconnected your heart from the rituals that I've given you. So the question becomes, well, what's the solution to that, right? Is the solution stop coming to church? Is the solution stop having my devotional time in the morning where I'm reading the Bible? Because my heart's not connected to it. I, that's the loophole. There it is. Right? I don't have to get up early and study the Bible because, yeah, my heart wouldn't be in it. Therefore, I'm not going to do it. And that's not the answer. The answer is not disconnect from the disciplines of walking with Jesus. In fact, that's, that's one of the reasons this, can be, this thing can happen to us. This heart's far from God, but lips still honoring him description of uh, verse 13. That's one of the reasons it can happen to us is because the Christian life does involve the repetition of discipline. It just does. That's part of walking with God. So the question, the answer then uh, to, well, what do I do, is not stop doing those repetitious disciplines. It is reconnect those disciplines to their purpose, which is to know God and to be in awe of God. Reconnect them to their purpose. Well, how do you do that, Trent? Well, I'll give you a couple of suggestions. I mean, we'll just use studying the Bible as an example, as one of the disciplines we're supposed to do every day, right? And so we wake up and we, we are in the discipline of God's word. And it's not like every morning when you wake up, you just go, man, my heart is so engaged here. Like, I'm so excited, God, to be here with you. So one of the ways to bring about the reconnection of the heart 
to the discipline is to bring disruption to the discipline. Don't get rid of the discipline, just disrupt the way you do it, right? So when it comes to studying, I'll tell you some of the practices I do personally in my own life, right? Is I will, I will go back and forth between studying law, I'll read large chunks of scripture, chapters at a time, and then I will, I will go from that to at points just going, I'm just gonna read a verse this morning and I'm gonna meditate upon this verse. You can spend hours meditating on praying about one verse. You may not believe that's possible. Believe me, it's possible. And you can disrupt your discipline in that way. You can disrupt your discipline by bringing devotional materials into play and going, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use Blackaby's Knowing God or I'm gonna use uh, Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest. I'm just gonna read some insights from others that infuse the text and speak to it. I'm gonna bring that into it. Maybe at times you have your regular place where you meet with God and you say, this is my chair or this is my room or this is my closet or my, wherever I get down on my face before God and I seek him and I open his word and I meditate on it. But it, sometimes I need to grab that Bible, I need to get out the door and just go for a walk and talk with God while I walk, right? Those are just small ways to bring disruption. But every time you disrupt your discipline, that assumes a, that assumes a regular pattern, by the way, that you are disrupting from. And then when you bring that disruption, you are forced to, to ask the question, what's the reason I'm doing this again? What's the reason I am, I am in God's word every morning? It's because I wanna know God. I wanna be in awe of God. And as I disrupt that discipline, I bring some new freshness to it, reconnect it to its purpose, hopefully, and continue to find ways to not just be what chapter 29, verse 13 is talking about. Your lips honor me, your mouth honors me, but your heart is far from me. The repetition of religious ritual will ultimately bring about spiritual blindness in you. You with me, church? Okay, number two, what causes spiritual blindness? And this is, this is an interesting one because again, we're talking about now the blindness comes upon God's people, right? Not the type we talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter four, but the next thing we see in this text is that it's God himself who brings about the blindness. It is God himself who does it. Now, isn't that interesting? Because we might think, oh, it's just the consequences. It's the natural consequences of my foolish choices or my rejection of God or my repetition of religious rituals. It's the natural consequences of that that cause me to be blind. But God does not say that here. He takes credit for the blindness. Look at what he says in verses 10 through 12. It says, verse 10, for the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And then he uses a metaphor of this book that he, he, we were commanded to read, right? And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to the one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed, right? In other words, he could read it, except that it's sealed and he's not able to open it, right? So who has sealed it in this metaphor, it's God who sealed it. Go back to verse 10 where he says, the Lord has poured out upon you this spirit of sleep. It's not, it wasn't something that you brought upon yourself necessarily, but, but God did it. Now, we see here that what God is saying is in response, Jer Jerusalem, in response, Judah, to your failure to follow me, I'm going to pour out upon you a spiritual blindness. And it's actually gonna be an act of mercy that I'm gonna do that because when I pour out my spiritual blindness upon you, I'm the cause of it, but it's a response to your failure to see your need and to see me and to love me. I'm gonna pour this blindness out upon you and I'm gonna leave it in place long enough so that you realize that you need me, right? It's like when I've got Mark up here and he doesn't recognize perhaps at first that he's got a resource in me that if he asks me to take off the blinder, 
and then guide him to the chair, he'll get there much faster than if he just stumbles around, right? And eventually the point is, if we're wearing a blindfold, we need to recognize that we're wearing a blindfold. The most dangerous thing in the world is to be blind and not know you're blind. You'll walk right off the edge of this thing and break your neck, right? And he's saying, I'm gonna bring about blindness. I'm going to do it so that you would recognize and see like, I don't, I don't see. Now church, here's what, here's what that means for us is we need to begin to ask God, are there places where I am failing to see your will and your ways and failing to experience your heart? And quite frankly, it's the last one that I see most of in, uh, in, in not just our church, but in the church, right? In God's people. That's the one I see the most is we're pretty good at studying God's word and knowing kind of the, the way he operates. And so we still have some connection to like that's God's way or even be able to sometimes identify, okay, that seems to be his hand at work in that circumstance or that situation. But often I find that we are disconnected from the heart of God, that we're okay with just, you know, honestly, we're, we're okay with just kind of average marriages instead of marriages where God is at the center and our hearts are broken for the things of God. And, we're gonna, and husbands, we're gonna lead our wives and honor them in a way that is like connected to the heart of God. Or we're looking around our city and we just feel, we feel no sense of what God feels when he looks at our city. When he sees what goes on in our city, it's as if we kind of can, I can see where God's at work or I can see that perhaps, but we seem to be blind sometimes in, in that we experience nothing of what God feels when we look at the circumstances and situations around us. That's, that's a part of blindness. And so he's saying, I, I, I bring that on. God is saying, I bring that on so that you would know that you are blind. And when you know that, that you would cry out to me to change that, to be aware of it. So that's one, maybe hard to hear, but on the other hand, I think it's, at least as I read it, it's incredibly hopeful because if God is the one who causes me to be spiritually blind in certain ways as his follower, to not see things, he's doing it out of mercy and he's committed to removing that. That's the whole thrust of this whole chapter is I'm committed to removing that blindness. So Ultimately, I can trust that his purpose for it, he'll accomplish it, and then that blindness will be removed. I'd much rather have a blindness brought by God with a purpose that ultimately he will remove in time when he sees fit and when it's right than to have a blindness that's brought about by me and has no guarantee of ever being removed. I'd much rather have the first than the second. Now, the third, the third thing that we see here, and I, honestly, I'd rather not even mention this one, but I have to because it's here. The third thing that brings about spiritual blindness in the lives of God's people are arrogant spiritual leaders. Look again at, at verse 10 where he says, he has closed the eyes of the prophets. He has covered the heads of the seers. Those are the religious leaders of the day. They're the ones that are supposed to be leading his people to sight, to understanding who he is and what he's like. They're supposed to be the ones that are tasked with this job and they are in fact creating more blindness Less awareness of who God is, less awareness of his heart, less awareness of what he's doing. And then verses 15 and 16 reiterate that. He says, ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark and who say, uh, who sees us, who knows us. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should save its maker? He did not make me. Or the thing formed, save him who formed it. He has no understanding 
So a lot could be said here, but for today, let's just be reminded of this. It's so deeply important because if following the wrong leader leads us into spiritual blindness, is it important that we follow the right leaders? Yeah, and how do we know if they're the right leaders? We examine everything that we're taught by the word of God, everything. Everything has to go up against it. Everything has to meet that challenge. No opinions, no ideas, no thoughts should go unchallenged or untethered from God's word. We should always examine that. Look, here's the reality. You know me up here, but you don't know me in my home. Not, Not most of you, right? So you don't know if I'm filled with arrogance. You don't know if I'm just flooded heart and soul with it. You don't know. But what you can measure is whether or not what we teach as a church is tethered to the word of God. And the thing we're also gonna see later, and it's just, it's good news because sometimes we get fooled, we get deceived. We think we're following someone who's teaching truth, right? Perhaps they're teaching what is true, but their heart is disconnected from God, they're arrogant, is that we're gonna see here in just a bit in verse 14, is gonna tell us that God has a way of removing, removing arrogant leaders from their leadership. He has a way of getting them out of positions of authority. And we can trust that. We can trust that God is good to do that. He's merciful to his people to remove arrogant leaders from positions of authority. Sometimes it doesn't happen as fast as we might hope, but it does happen and he does do it because he cares way more about his church, his bride, his people than any of us do. As much as we might love the church and want her to thrive, he loves it more. He cares about it more. So let's look then at the second question. So first question again. What brings about spiritual blindness? So, you know, if, he's, if you're wondering, do I have spiritual blindness, you know? I mean, just ask yourself, do I see the, re- the repetition of empty religious rituals in my life? Are those to whom I look for spiritual guidance, do they seem to be steeped in arrogance? Are those things present in me? Second question then now is how does God take away our blindness? How does he take it away? And let's just hit a few of these now. The first way that God begins to remove spiritual blindness from his people is by allowing us to experience the cost of our blindness. By allowing us to experience the cost of our blindness. Look at verses one through four again. This is where he starts in this whole chapter. He's saying, add year to year in verse one, let the feasts run their round. And then in verse two, he says, yet I will distress Ariel and there will be, shall be moaning and lamentation and she shall be to me like an Ariel. Ariel, it sounds like the word for altar. So he's essentially saying like, my people will be like a sacrifice, sacrifice on the altar, okay? He says, and I will encamp against you all around and will besiege you with towers and I will raise siege works against you and you will be brought low From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech shall be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. So here's what God is saying to Jerusalem. He's saying there's going to come a day, and this is we know this because it's going to happen, right? Where Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by Assyria. The army is going to be at the gates. In fact, we're going to see it at the end of at the end of the 30s. In just a few chapters, we're going to see this scene play itself out. And Assyria's army is gonna be at the gates and they're gonna be building siege works against Jerusalem. And what God is saying is, when that's happening, make no mistake, it may look like it's Assyria that is besieging your city and building siege works up against the wall, but it's me, it's not them. I mean, it is them, but it's really me behind them. That's what he's saying right here. I'm the one surrounding your city. I'm the one building the siege works. And so what he's essentially saying is, One of the ways that I will ultimately remove your spiritual blindness is I will allow you to experience the consequences of your choices. 
And we've all seen this. One of the hardest parts in parenting, isn't it, parents? Isn't one of the hardest parts of parenting knowing when to let your kids experience the consequences of their choices and when to rescue them from them? I mean, right? A great parent, right? Great parents don't live on either of those extremes. They don't live in that extreme where, like, I never protect my kid. But they also don't live in the extreme where they say, I also always just, boom, step in. The second any difficulty is on my kid for some choice that they made that was a bad choice. I don't just step in and immediately eliminate the consequences of that. I allow them at points to experience those consequences. And it's hard to know when to do which of those two things, isn't it? Man, it's hard. And God, but here's, I mean, God is saying, I will, and I know how to allow you to experience those consequences in just the right way, in just the right amount, so that ultimately the result is not your destruction, but the result is you being brought out of spiritual blindness. That's the first way he says, I'm gonna bring you out spiritual blindness. Let me encourage you then to see where God allows you to experience the consequences of perhaps foolish choices that you've made, to see those as God's hand of mercy walking you out of spiritual blindness and into having a heart like his heart and into having eyes that see. Instead of responding to that like, God, how dare you allow that to happen to me? To say, God, you're merciful. You're merciful. Lead me out of blindness and into sight. I want to see your ways. I want to see your heart. The second thing the text tells us that God does to take away spiritual blindness or lead us out of spiritual blindness is that he, he brings it, takes away spiritual blindness <clears throat> by rescuing us from the costs of our choices in a way that we can't take credit for. So he leaves us in those consequences for a while, but not indefinitely. And then when he rescues us from out from underneath him, he does so in a way that we get none of the credit, where he shows us that we needed him to rescue us. He doesn't do it by saying, here, let me do it in a way that you can say, I worked my way out from underneath the consequences. Because would that eliminate our spiritual blindness? That would just make us more blind because we'd think we were good enough and we did it well enough. And look at what he says in verses five through eight. I love this because before there's any hint that his people have humbled themselves or repented or said, God, we're blind, help us. Before, they, it, before there's any appearance of any of that, look at what he says in verses five through eight. If verses one through four were hard to hear because he says, siege works and I'm gonna come, and it's gonna be me battling against you. Now listen to verses five through eight. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. In other words, they're gonna blow away. That's what he's saying. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. And he goes on to describe it as when you're hungry and you awake and you realize I'm still hungry, right? And so his point is this. It may, you may feel like you're in the middle of a nightmare as that's, as that's happening, but ultimately I am going to do away with those armies that are at your gates, Jerusalem. I will be the one and I will do it in a way that you will not get credit. I will get complete credit. And one of the ways that I want to bring you out of your blindness and into seeing is by showing you that I'm the only one that can rescue you. And so not only will I surrender you to the consequences of your choices at points to eliminate your blindness, I will also 
rescue you from those costs, from those consequences in my timeline and in my way and I will get all the credit and you will see more fully that you need me. Has God ever rescued you from a consequence? Has he? I hope so. I hope you've experienced that because it melts your heart, my friend. Oh my goodness. When you've made some dumb choice and look, I'm first to raise my hand, okay? When you made some dumb choice and for a while you're experiencing the consequences of that and you're thinking, oh, I'm such a fool. Hopefully you begin to say, I'm such a fool. I'm such a fool. What was I thinking? And then, not because you were so great, not, because you, not even because sometimes you humbled yourselves, but because God just said, okay, I know, I know how and when and now is the time. I'm going to now rescue you from that consequence. I'm gonna bring you back up and you're gonna recognize that was me. I, you didn't do it. And when that happens, you just think to yourself, because you recognize a couple things. One, I was a fool. Two, there's no way I could have ever been repentant enough or good enough for God to now raise me up out of this pit that I've put myself in, right? There's no way, and yet he's done it. We just sang in one of the songs, saying, you have raised me up so high above my station. You recognize that the grace and mercy of God, that you should be called a child of God, raises you so far above anything that you've ever deserved that you are astounded, and that astoundedness begins to cause the blinders to fall off. You with me? So he leaves us in the consequences for a time. Then he rescues us. And there's no, by the way, formula for that. But this is what he does. Now, then, I already, already touched on this, so we'll just read verse 14. The third thing he does is he reveals the foolishness of arrogant spiritual leaders. If we're following the wrong leaders, he reveals their foolishness. He shows them to be what they truly are. Let's get verse 14. It says, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I went back to chapter 28. You're wondering, where am I? That actually kind of (laughs) fit. Sorry, sorry. Okay, verse 14 is where I am. Chapter 29 says, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. Okay, pause. Verse 13, right before this, he just said, he just said, your lips honor me, but your hearts are far from me. You remember that, right? Verse 13. He says, and so then he says, therefore, now look, I was reading this this week and I was astounded again because my, my reaction was to think, what should come after the therefore in this situation? You're, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Therefore, and I would think what would come after that would be, I'm gonna discipline you, I'm gonna judge you, I'm gonna, something of that nature. And then in verse 14, he says this. You li- you're honoring me with your lips, your hearts are far from me. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. Are you amazed by that as I am? That's astounding. He's going to say, I'm going to pour out wonders upon you so that you would see how good I am. And then what he follows that with is, his, and the wisdom, you could put that in quotes really, the wisdom of the wise, of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. In other words, what he's saying is those prophets and seers that I talked about back up in verse 9, the ones that are blind and leading you astray, I'm, gonna, I'm going to make what 
I'm gonna make apparent that their wisdom is not wisdom. I'm gonna make apparent that their discernment is not discernment. I'm going to do away with their authority. So we can trust that God in time removes arrogant spiritual leaders from their positions to reveal to us that we're following the wrong leaders. Now, I just, I love that God is so committed. Verse 14 may be my favorite verse in this chapter because he's so committed to removing our spiritual blindness that he doesn't say, I'm gonna just, he didn't just hammer on us over and over again. He says, I'm actually gonna work wonders among you. I'm gonna work miraculous wonders among you to remove your spiritual blindness. And the last one, let's just close with this one. The last thing he tells us about how he removes our spiritual blindness is by telling us in advance that he will take it away when we humble ourselves. When we humble ourselves. So he gives us a way to participate with him. We've seen up to this point that God is sovereignly in charge, right? That he brings about blindness. He says, I'm the one who's causing it. I'm doing it. I will leave you in the consequences as long as I know I need to. I will then rescue you from them in a way that shows that I'm in charge and I'm in control. I will remove the leaders I need to remove. Like all this is really just stuff he's doing. Did you see that? To remove spiritual blindness from his people. And then he gives us one thing essentially that we can do to partner with him. And this is not a put the coin in the machine and get the, you know, get the vending machine result out of it, okay? Humble myself and then God will remove the spiritual blindness. God at times when we humble ourselves may leave us in spiritual blindness for a time and there may be times as we saw earlier where we haven't even begun to humble ourselves and yet he takes away the spiritual blindness so that we might see. He just does things in his own time and for his own purposes and he understands what he's doing. He is never, never late and he is never early. And so he says in verse 17 through 21, is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In other words, I'm gonna turn things upside down. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall what? shall see. The meek, here it is, the meek, the humble, shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. What he's saying is, here's how you participate with me. When you find yourself in the midst of spiritual blindness, you humble yourself. You cry out to me. You say, Lord, I can't see. Help me see. I want to see you. I wanna have your heart. I wanna know your ways. Show them to me. You ask God's spirit to move and you trust that this promise is true, that if you will humble yourself, right? And that may involve letting go of doing certain things you've been doing, may involve confession, may involve admitting to someone, going to someone and asking for forgiveness when you've wronged them. There's a thousand ways God might call you to humble yourself. But when you humble yourself, trust that this promise in time will come true. The meek will experience, will receive fresh joy in the Lord. If there's a fresh type of joy to receive, would you want it? Yeah, you can have your stale joy. I'll take the fresh joy, right? Joy that's gone old, that's from 10 years ago. That's, yeah, there was a day where I used to have joy in God. And he's saying, I will give you fresh joy in me. Fresh joy. You humble yourself. You participate with me in the removal of spiritual blindness from your life by humbling yourself. And as you do, watch me begin to pour out fresh joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want that fresh joy that your spirit has to give and we pray that you'd give it.
We pray that you'd make us mindful. Give us eyes to see. If we're blind, help us to know that. And then we'll cry out to you. We'll cry out to you and trust that you are merciful and good. Thank you. Lord, when I picked up this text this week, I really, I just say to you, I thought this was going to be, I just had in my mind this word of judgment about blindness. And I was so struck by your commitment to remove blindness from your people and your mercy working wonders again and again and again and again. What what a good thing to hear. Thank you. Just thank you for that. Lord, we want to respond to you now. We want to sing to you, not with just lips, but with hearts. And so we offer you this response. We want to connect our heart to it in every way that we can. We strengthen ourselves now to offer you our hearts. We pray that you'd fill us with that strength. We recognize, Lord, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.